Welcome to the Holy Soup Podcast, where the church's status quo and sacred cows get rounded up, simmered down, and dished out. And now, here's your chief cook, author, innovator, filmmaker, and founder of Group Publishing, Tom Schultz. Welcome to Holy Soup. In these rapidly changing times, Churches and other faith-based organizations are feeling pressure from forces in the culture that are taking positions that are different from those that are typically long held by many religious institutions. It's one thing to take a stand, it's quite another to withstand the vigorous blowback from those who oppose some of the traditional positions. Case in point, Gordon College, a Christian school near Boston, in 2014, its president, Dr. Michael Lindsay signed a letter advocating a religious exemption to federal anti-discrimination laws pertaining to gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender employees. Well, Gordon then became the target of massive criticism from media and others, including some of its own faculty. One of the critics, an associate professor of philosophy at Gordon College, publicly criticized her own school and was later disciplined for speaking out in that way. Now, the ACLU is suing Gordon College on behalf of that faculty member. So, ramifications for taking a stand continue to impact Gordon College. I spoke with President Michael Lindsay, and let's join in now on that conversation. Dr. Michael Lindsay, tell me, how did this whole story begin? Last spring, I signed a letter to President Obama in solidarity with faith-based organizations like Catholic Charities and um, the Salvation Army, which are federal contractors, and they need to have the ability to hire for mission. The President's executive order that was being discussed was going to basically provide uh, protections for the LGBT community in hiring practices and in uh, employment law. But without a religious exemption, it would be impossible for Catholic charities to say that you have to, that their CEO needs to be Roman Catholic. That seems to me to be a pretty fundamental thing for faith-based organizations. So I, along with hundreds of other religious leaders, signed uh, letters or encouraged the president to include a religious exemption. As it turned out, I signed a letter, which I thought was a private letter, to the head of the faith-based office at the White House. Turns out that letter was not private, it got shared with the press, and, and really forced Gordon into the middle of a cultural debate. I ended up being the only college president signing this particular letter and the only person in New England. New England has been quite progressive on LGBT issues for a long time, and so the Boston Globe ran a negative news story about it, and then a social media firestorm ensued. And I had uh, unwittingly uh, put Gordon into the middle of a deep cultural debate. And it has been really challenging for our community. Gordon is an evangelical Christian college. It's been around for 125 years. For about the last 50 years, we've had a community covenant which sets the behavioral practices of our faculty and students, um, which is in alignment with core evangelical sort of uh, doctrine and practices. But one of them dealt with uh, homosexual practice. So we've had gay students at Gordon. We've had gay employees. We simply ask that they be celibate while they're part of the Gordon community sort of in line with how historic Christianity has dealt with this issue. Uh, that particular framework, however, uh, is not popular in New England these days. And so as people got to know more about Gordon's position, 
there was an outcry uh, against the institution, and a lot of pressure was brought to bear on Gordon. We had a number of people um, who said that they no longer wanted to do anything with Gordon College. So we had been managing the Old Town Hall in nearby Salem for eight and a half years, really subsidizing a, a public work, a public good that was there. And uh, we had decided that we would end that relationship in September. But the mayor of Salem really, I think, out of some political pressure, felt she needed to end that earlier. And so in a very public way, she cut ties with us. Local communities where we had uh, student teachers or other kinds of volunteer activities taking place in public schools began questioning that. And in fact, one of the school districts where we volunteered 14,000 volunteer hours last year decided that they would cut ties with us in a unilateral move. Nobody is hurt by that decision except this, the, the school kids in that particular community. Our students really wanted to volunteer. We loved this community. It's called Lynn, Massachusetts. It's a wonderful working class community on the North Shore of Boston. And it's our hope and prayer that we might be able to restore that relationship. But those kinds of things, which really are much more about politics than they are about um, the underlying sort of cultural issues that are at work, that's what came to come to the surface, you know, that's what came to the surface in the midst of this, and it really made things quite challenging for us. There was a local media story in which uh, a reporter asked the head of our accrediting body um, what they were going to do in this kind of situation, and she said, well, in episodes where a one of our accredited institutions get into the press in a negative way, we, quote, review the situation. That phrase, review the situation, got translated in the popular mindset to we're going to review their accreditation. And we spent the next nine months sort of battling this, this uh, mindset that somehow our accreditation was at risk. Gordon is a, one of a handful of nationally ranked Christian colleges. We're one of two Christian colleges that are both in the Princeton Review and on Kiblinger's list of um, best values of liberal arts colleges. We are a flagship institution, and to suggest that we were going to somehow lose our accreditation is ludicrous. But nonetheless, that was part of the popular mindset for a season, and we found it to be very difficult. Since then, have there been tangible losses that uh, you can point to because of this? Yes. Uh, even the, the very issue of the accreditation question uh, caused some people to say, you know, we're not sure that we wanted to have our son or daughter consider Gordon, and so um, we did not recruit as many students as we were hoping for next fall. Um, we have had people decided to boycott our institution financially uh, over the matter. We've had um, public officials uh, have threatened us. We've had to spend a lot of time and energy uh, trying to manage around a variety of these issues. In some ways, the, the whole incident has been um, instructive for Gordon because it's, it's forced us to figure out ways to better care for all of our students, not just our, our LGBT students, but to care for all of our students in a more effective way. And it's also provided us an opportunity to bear witness to our faith with our core convictions intact while also saying we need to be a place of real grace and love. So it's my hope that God will redeem the, the pain and difficulty of this year, but there's no doubt about it. This was the 100-year storm that came to Gordon. What was it like for you personally to walk through all of this? It's been the most humiliating year of my life. The Boston Globe ran six negative articles about us. They didn't have a stock photo of Gordon College, so they ran my headshot on a number of them. I, I saw a friend in early August and uh, I hadn't seen him in a, about 15 years, 
and he said, Michael Lindsay, my most hated friend on Facebook, because he could read the Facebook post. People would say very nasty things on my, my Facebook page. I had people send pornographic pictures to me. I, I had um, hate mail. It was, a, it was a debilitating, painful, hurtful episode of my life that I hope I never have to repeat. This whole issue of homosexuality and all of the LGBT issues and arguments has been one that churches are either dealing with now or struggling with trying to find their way through. And many say that uh, all churches at some point are going to have to deal with in some way. What have you learned about navigating this as an issue from an organizational side that you would maybe do differently in the future or that you could help others understand how to navigate it? So Gordon is a, um, an evangelical institution. The evangelical community has sort of a, a traditional view on matters of human sexuality. I recognize not everybody who listens to your podcast shares that conviction. So I would say that one of the important things that I hope that the global church can do around this matter is to keep this particular issue in the proper perspective of the much larger arc and uh, mission of advancing the gospel. I really want us to be Jesus-centered. I want us as an institution to be Jesus-centered, and I want our community to be out sharing the good news of Jesus. And um, I think that there is some naivete in the church where folks on both sides of this issue don't realize how much there is there, there are political forces that want to use church debates on this issue for political purposes, political ends, not for theological ends. And um, it is incredibly difficult once you find yourself in the middle of this fray to be able to separate the political from the theological. It's incredibly challenging. It's a much better strategy to get ahead of this particular issue because it is it will come to every Christian institution. It this is going to be more divisive for our culture than say abortion was in the 1970s. And the reason is because um, it it goes with a, a a long history in which a minority community in our culture has really been, you know, persecuted and humiliated. And out of that there are strong emotions for vindication in a way that we don't see on the abortion debate. And so churches have got to be very thoughtful about this. A very practical bit of advice that I would give to every single pastor and every Christian leader, regardless of where they stand on this issue, is the value of forming friendships with leaders in the gay community. Um, I have found that having some of those friendships have been very helpful for me as I've navigated around this issue. Now, we disagree deeply around how Gordon ought to handle this issue, and we disagree on theological issues and on larger issues in civil society. But by having the relational framework of personal connections, it's just so much harder to demonize people when you know them as human beings. And um, I, I will say that it's been really helpful for me as an individual, as a leader, and I think for our community as an organization 
that I've been able to develop some of those friendships. Some of them were in place beforehand. I'm a sociologist by training, and so sociology has a lot of overlap with issues of sexual identity, LGBT concerns. Um, the sociology of sexuality is a strong and vibrant field or sub subdiscipline within the field. So I had a number of relationships, but I have to say I really needed to draw upon those and then develop more friendships in order to be able to navigate around these matters. You mentioned what leaders might be able to do to befriend people in the gay community. What about how you move an entire organization or congregation? You said get ahead of it. Well, what does that mean for, say, a congregation? I think the most important thing is for there to be um, a common understanding, a common theological conviction among the leadership of a Christian institution on this issue. I think it's very difficult to create sort of shared theological conviction across a whole church or a whole um, faith-based organization. But the leadership needs to have a degree of understanding and shared conviction on this issue. Because if your leadership cohort is of the same mind, it gives the organization the freedom to be engaged in conversations that can be quite uncomfortable and difficult. But if you're in the board meeting and you're negotiating around these matters, if the leadership team is trying to figure out where is the, the, you know, the institution going to land, it makes it really difficult to be able to be engaged in those conversations out in the wider uh, community, in the wider public square. I think on this particular issue, we are going to see that there's going to be a wide spectrum. And we can already see it, for example, the mainline churches typically going in a certain direction, the evangelical churches going in a different direction. It doesn't mean that evangelicals and mainliners can't work together on things, but it's just, just suggest on this issue, there's, we're not going to be united in the whole global church. But I do think it's important for the leadership of individual congregations and for um, church-related organizations or faith-based organizations, I think the leadership team needs to pretty much be on the same page. It just makes it so much easier to be engaged in the wider concerns. As a leader of a faith-based institution and, and a sociologist, when you look at this whole issue and you look forward a little bit, what do you believe this is going to do to the church in particular? You know, I was talking with a pastor friend the other day who said he believes this issue, as laws get changed and as public opinion swings the direction that it's swinging, this issue is going to be one that, in his view, is really going to bring the church in America down as the church as we know it. What do you think? I don't know if I would say it's going to bring down the church in America because I think that the gospel is um, both an offense and unstoppable that uh, there will always be a segment in which um, the message of Jesus is going to be welcomed and at the same time rejected. But I think it does signal the end of a comfortable cultural Christianity. I think that this probably is emblematic. I don't think it's the cause. I think it's just representative of the cultural shift of an environment where latent Christianity, which was taken for granted for at least a hundred years in our society, is just no longer going to be taken for granted. That there's not going to be the same kind of cultural framework of understanding. Now this is not to say, you know, we're in such a different place or that what's happened in the last five years is the precipitating force. It's been going on for a long time. 
look at the, the loss of basic biblical literacy in our culture. People don't know what the apple is supposed to symbolize, you know, from Genesis. So th th some of that sort of shared cultural vocabulary, which we used to take for granted, that began eroding 30, 40 years ago. And this is just sort of the culmination of a much longer process. I do think that this particular issue is going to be quite divisive for the church because uh, it, it's enmeshed in issues of individual identity, sexual politics, civil society, and really the relationship of Christianity and culture. Should Christianity, you know, it's, it's the Niebuhr's fivefold understanding of Christ and culture. Are we against culture? Are we transforming culture? Are we in or of culture? These are all real issues on which wonderful people of faith have sincerely disagreed for centuries. But I do think that the, the challenges that a place like Gordon College has experienced in the last year, I do believe it's actually coming to every single Christian institution over the next five years. Why did we experience it before other people? Well, I think because um, New England is a, is a more secular community than other parts of the country. And um, I like to think Gordon has been on the leading edge of lots of things for a while. And so I think perhaps we have simply been part of engaging on these issues in a way that the rest of the, the country is going to have to be facing in the days ahead. Let's talk about what you learned through this whole story thus far. As a leader, when you look at how this thing started and how it's evolved and, and how it's played out, what would you do differently? You know, you have to live life going forward, but you understand it looking backwards. I'm not sure um, there's any one particular thing or set of things after this became such a, a media spotlight. I'm not so sure there's anything I necessarily would have done differently. Um, had I realized the amount of energy and uh, activity my signing what I thought was a private letter to the president's director of faith-based office, had I realized that that would have happened, I never would have signed the letter um, because I was not trying to enter Gordon into a cultural debate. Um, that said, I think that on the whole, I'm relatively satisfied with how Gordon as an institution has responded and, you know, based on what I know today, I'm relatively satisfied with how I've responded. I, I would like to think there could be some ways in which I could have been less anxious about the whole matter. I found myself waking up with a pit in my stomach, sort of like continual butterflies, anxiety, that from the first moment of conscious thought in the morning until I went to bed, pretty much was with me. I, um, I lost weight. I lost sleep. Um, I, um, I shed a lot more tears than I have <laughs> any other year in my life. It's, it, this has been incredibly difficult for me. Um, I really would never wish it upon anybody. But... What I'm hoping is that God has used this year to refine me, to be a more uh, Christ-honoring leader. I certainly think that I am more in touch with some of the degrees of pain and suffering that 
even members of the LGBT community have felt. I myself have felt marginalized in some ways, shamed. And so I understand some of the experiences that they talk about in a, in a personal way that I, I, I didn't know a year ago. Um, I spent a lot of time reading the first 50 Psalms uh, over the last year. One of my mentors said, you know, you're going to need to spend time there because in one Psalm, David can say, oh God, I trust you. And then in the next verse, he says, oh God, help me. I can't trust you. <laughs> I really relate to that, that in the same moment of trust, I have despair. In the same moment of confidence, the Lord is going to sustain us. I wonder, where are you, Lord? And that's probably part of every pilgrim's progress, every pilgrim's journey at some point in time. And it's just been more of my own experience this past year than I've ever had before. Leadership is sometimes lonely. Has that been magnified for you after this experience? This has absolutely been the loneliest season of my life. I actually don't know how someone in leadership undergoes the kind of scrutiny and critique that I experienced without a supportive spouse. I really don't know how you do it. My wife, Rebecca, has always been a rock in my life, but I found her to be literally the person who would hold my arms up in the moments when I was really struggling. You know, So she came alongside me in a very powerful way, both in terms of prayer support, but really in terms of personal encouragement. She knew when I would get up out of bed at 2 o'clock uh, to try and think my way through some issues. She was there when I was dealing with uh, the deep pain and sadness of another negative news story or somebody who I loved saying some really hateful things about me. These were really difficult times and I relied upon my wife in tremendous ways. I'm also blessed in that I have a tremendous, very talented uh, leadership team a small group of uh, six colleagues who provide leadership for the college that I work with on a daily basis. And we are of one mindset, and we became more united through this season. I don't know how I would have done it without their mutual support and encouragement. It really was a bonding experience. The Crucible has a way of um, uniting leadership teams in ways that nothing else can, and we certainly experienced that this past year. What's interesting about you is that you're not only a current leader in a faith-based organization, but you're a sociologist who's looking at this situation through, through that lens. You're also an expert on leadership. You've written on the subject. You've talked with and spent time with hundreds of top leaders in the nation, and you've gone through and taken a look at the qualities that they particularly have in common. When a leader faces a situation like this that calls for the most demanding type of leadership ability and acumen, what have you seen that has come about that maybe you've learned that relates to what you've learned about leadership as a skill, as a gift, and, and as something so important in a crisis like this? About a year ago, we released a book called View from the Top, and it's a summary of these 550 interviews that I did with amazing leaders over the last 10 years. In the book, we talk about the iceberg effect of leadership, that what most people see is just the tip of the, what's above the surface, the very the tip of the iceberg. But there is a, 
a much larger mass below the surface that consumes the leader's time, energy, resources. Most of what a leader does is not seen uh, by the public, not even seen by their own uh, employees or members of their organization. And while doing the research, I interviewed enough of the leaders and learned enough about their challenges and also their accomplishments that uh, I wrote in the book, A Leader's Best Work Never Sees the Light of Day. That I became convinced that most of the best work we do as leaders actually occurs outside the public eye. Many times we are making the organization better for the very people who have no idea what you have done, the sacrifices that you've made, or the ways in which you've tried to help uh, strengthen a faltering institution or to reinforce what's much needed. Leaders spend their time doing two things. They work very hard to keep bad things from either becoming public or becoming worse or they spend time working on good things that in the end don't materialize. Partnerships or joint ventures or mergers that they're working on that in the end fall through. And you may spend three months, even a year, working on something that at the end it just doesn't come to fruition. And the leader doesn't go around and announce to everybody, oh, if you only knew what we could have done, but it didn't, it didn't happen. You just move on. You know, you shake the dust off your feet and you move on. I found that the leaders who most impressed me were individuals who had learned how to um, serve their institution without the public recognition, that they were willing to make the sacrifices and do the hard things even if it didn't get recognized by others, and that that oftentimes was the most effective thing that they could possibly do. Leaders are in a better position to be able to bring about change outside the, the, the spotlight. And so uh, that iceberg effect is, is real. And over the last year, I certainly experienced that. It's probably too, too early to tell and assess what we did over the last year and if it made a real difference. And invariably, there's lots of things that we did as a leadership team that um, you know will probably never be known by folks. But I do think probably the best work I have ever done as a leader occurred over this past year where I was involved in trying to make things better, far below the surface, that I think will serve our institution better and, and I hope actually would help serve um, God's kingdom better. But a leader's best work oftentimes doesn't see the light of day. Finally, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I'd like to follow up on it. For you personally, what impact has this whole thing had on your faith? You know, Tom, I think I'm still in process on that. I have never prayed as fervently or as passionately or frankly as longly <laughs> for as long a period of time as I have over the past year, begging God to um, bring about the end of the pain in one way or another. And for whatever reason, in God's providence, that's not how it, it panned out. Um, that uh, it seemed that just the minute that we solved one issue, it, it turned into three or four further complications or issues. It was like a hydra that, you know, you, you address one, one head of the hydra and three sprout in its place. And um, that's what made it so difficult, is it just was 
an incredibly complex, ever-changing scenario. You solve one issue and then that yielded a whole nother range of challenges. And I don't understand why God allowed the complications to persist and the pain to be there. But I also realized that part of the maturing of my heart involved the process by which the pain, even the, the anger and the bitterness, was supplanted with a, a measure of godly love, if I can put it that way. Um, Ephesians chapter 3 talks about how important it is for uh, us to be filled with the fullness of God. And I feel like that my heart matured as a leader over the past year. That I have a, a more mature understanding of love. Love for uh, people who oppose me. Uh, love for people who uh, said mean things about me. It doesn't mean that I like them all the time, and it doesn't mean that I, uh, you know, was immune to their words because it hurt. It could hurt deeply. But I do think that there's a degree of spiritual maturity in my life that didn't exist a year ago, and I would like to think that that's part of how God is redeeming this particular chapter in my own life and making me into a leader that's more after his own heart. Thank you, Dr. Michael Lindsay. You know, these issues like uh, he has dealt with at Gordon College are not going to go away. They are going to continue to be hot and those in religious institutions of all kinds are going to uh, have to deal with in the future. There's a new resource that helps churches in particular deal with uh, this very issue in a civil and productive way. It's called Navigating the Conversation, Discussing Homosexuality and the Church. It is a downloadable resource that uh, includes lots of help, including uh, video clips, discussion guides, and handouts to help people in a congregation talk through these issues listening to the various sides and aspects in order to come to some conclusions that will help uh, the congregation navigate what can sometimes be a very divisive situation. That resource called Navigating the Conversation is available from group.com, Navigating the Conversation, Discussing Homosexuality and the Church. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode of the Holy Soup Podcast, and we'll see you next time.